So page 543, chapter 18, from verse 1. In the third year of Hoshea, king of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Neshutun. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord, but did not stop following him. He kept the command the Lord the Moses had given, and the Lord God was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. And from verse 13. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me and I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, the chief officer and his field commander, with a large army from the Chish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. They called for the king, and Elah king, son of Hekiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah of Asheph, the recorder, went out to them. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this was, is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing as confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officers? Even if you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen, Furthermore, I have come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord. The, God, the Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. 
Thanks, Jazz. Well done with some pretty funky names there. Uh, and good morning, everyone. My name is Cam Maxwell. If we haven't met, uh, great to be with you this morning. Uh, I invite you to keep open uh, that part of God's Word this morning. We're going to actually look at a pretty big chunk of Two Kings, uh, even beyond what Jazz just read for us. Um, and whatever uh, fears we may have for our future, whether it's uh, fears for our own well-being, or perhaps a, a broader fear for the direction of our world or the culture we sort of see changing around us, Uh, If we're wondering about what kind of world the the kids in our church are going to grow up in, well, I want to ask you just to first spare a thought uh, for the tangible fear of the future in Jerusalem about 700 BC. Actually, you can imagine uh, standing on the Jerusalem city walls and you can look out and kind of visibly see the future coming towards you as the Assyrian army fill the horizon, uh, hordes of them making their way towards your city. And they're coming to do what the Assyrians do best, uh, which is um, to kill, uh, to destroy, and to make sure that there is no future for those inside the city. Uh, To say their future looked bleak uh, for the Jerusalemites, I think would be putting it way too mildly. Now, we've been uh, having a bit of a break from our series in Two Kings. It's been a few weeks, and uh, welcome back on that sort of sober note. Uh, We just jumped in at a pretty uh, tense point. Uh, If you've just joined us this morning, again, a big welcome to you, and uh, perhaps if you just can't remember much of Two Kings so far, I want to start by setting the scene and uh, trying to explain how we got here and just give some of the background or help us make sense of what's happening in our passage this morning. Uh, One and Two Kings, both books, are tracking the way that God's chosen people have split into two kingdoms. Uh, We have Israel in the north. Uh, They have never really been faithful to God at all. We have Judah, a second kingdom in the south. Um, Their capital is Jerusalem. Uh, And they they have sometimes been a bit faithful to God. But what we've seen in the previous chapters is Israel in the north, after years of direct and clear warnings from God, that they have broken the covenant grievously. They had terms and conditions laid out very clearly and they have broken it time and again. Uh, They finally crossed the line of no return. And God, we saw in chapter 17, gave them up into the hands of Assyria. Uh, It's the last thing we looked at in our series in Two Kings a few weeks ago now, that full and complete destruction of Israel in the north. Uh, It's a devastating moment, not just in the Bible, but in history. Uh, Those those tribes of Israel have kind of been lost uh, in the pages of history from then on. For Judah in the south, uh, seeing what happens to their cousins in the north, well, the warning couldn't be any clearer, could it? Stay faithful. To the covenant with God because his patience actually does run out in the end. Because it's staying faithful to God that will guarantee their future and their safety. Their safety doesn't depend on building their own army, not on their alliances with other foreign powers, and cutting deals with the Assyrians won't probably work. In fact, as we finish chapter 17, the question we are left with is, having seen what happened to Israel, which direction will Judah go? They should heed that warning, But unfortunately, there's not been a great track record of listening carefully to God's word. And if they don't turn back to God, well, disaster is assured. It's amazing, though, that uh, God does this time and again. He provides just the right thing at just the right time. Uh, It turns out God is actually very good at his job. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so after generations of bad kings in Judah, um, some have been okay. uh, But when the threat to God's people is at its highest... Uh, God sends along the best king they've had since King David. In fact, uh, the narrator of one and two kings, every time he mentions a king, he compares them to David. Uh, And so far, no king has really measured up. Some have come close, but have a look again at verse 3 in chapter 18. 
Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. That's high praise. Uh, We haven't seen that at all, really, in 2 Kings. And as you read on, you notice Hezekiah's most notable achievement here is verse 4. He leads his people back into faithful worship of God. He gets rid of idols. Uh, He even broke a sacred relic, uh, the bronze snake of Moses, no less. An incredible piece of history, but it was being worshipped, so he broke it. Uh, Hezekiah does here what no king before him had managed as well. He gets rid of the high places. We've, read, uh, we've heard them mentioned many times. Uh, those are the places that the Israelites or the Judeans would go to to worship, like places like hilltops. Uh, God had been long unhappy with that practice, uh, but it had persisted and no king had really made a big effort to stamp it out. Hezekiah does. And so when you get to verse 5, I don't think you can find a better description of anyone uh, in the kings we've seen so far. Verse 5 Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Verse 6, he held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given to Moses. You read on, you see verse 7, we see a unique description of Hezekiah that actually has only ever been described of, of David. The Lord was with him. And uniquely, also like David, Hezekiah had success in whatever he did, including battling against the Philistines, a real thorn in the side that no king has had much success in. The amazing thing, given that glowing uh, report of Hezekiah, the amazing thing we'll see is that Hezekiah actually wasn't perfect. Uh, As we'll see, his trust in God wavered, it wobbled. Uh, He wasn't 100% faithful all the time. But this summary of his life is still 100% accurate. Verse 6, he held fast to the Lord. He held fast to the Lord. Isn't that a great, uh, great picture, a great phrase? Holding fast. I sort of picture a limpet stuck uh, firmly to the, a ship or perhaps a toddler clinging for dear life to a parent as they get dropped off at crash. Uh, that kind of real clinging on, holding on fast. And so it might seem from these first few verses uh, that life under Hezekiah will be great, smooth sailing ahead for the people of God, right? Not exactly. Uh, because God doesn't promise uh, easy life, even if his people are faithful. Uh, and in fact, there's a very small detail, it's easy to miss, but critical uh, in the flow of this, uh, this chapter, in those first eight verses. At the end of verse 7, we find out that Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Now, chapter 17 in mind, uh, what we've just uh, covered, uh, that's very alarming. Assyria are not to be messed with. And the narrator here, he wants to make double sure we realise it's a big deal. Um, from verses 9 to 12, the part of the chapter uh, we skipped uh, this morning, uh, the narrator recounts again what had happened to Israel. Just to remind us, don't mess with Assyria because this is what happens. Now let me say, uh, Hezekiah's move here to rebel against Assyria, it's not a good political move. In fact, from first glance, it looks like pure foolishness. He's poking the bear or you know, tickling the crocodile. Except that, It's consistent with a king who trusted God to be his protection, his saviour. Rebelling against Assyria was actually godly courage. Because regardless of the outcome, whatever may come, what Hezekiah is doing is freeing God's people from the rule of a foreign king who would not bow his knee to God. This is a move of faithful uh, leadership, courageous leadership. And it sets up a David versus Goliath kind of showdown. So, let's meet the fighters. We've already actually met a a David-like king, Hezekiah. Uh, He's in the blue corner. Uh, He weighs in as little more than a warlord with a tiny army in in Jerusalem. 
So let me introduce you today to Goliath in our story. Uh, he, in the red corner, and up on the screen we'll have an actual picture of this guy, King Sennacherib. Uh, he weighs in as the ruler of the known world, the most powerful and ruthless nation the world had seen to this point. Um, don't take it from me, I'll let um, Sennacherib uh, introduce himself actually. The next uh, slide you'll see a, um, a, an artifact, I think, from the Assyrian records uh, they kept for themselves. Uh, it's a prism, that's one of the, uh, one of the libraries of the museum somewhere in the world. Uh, here is what Sennacherib says about himself. Uh, let him introduce himself. I am Sennacherib, the great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, king of the four quarters of the world. Favourite of the great gods, the wise and crafty one, strong hero, first among all princes, the flame that consumes the insubmissive, who strikes the wicked with a thunderbolt. Not a bad business card, hey? That's uh, pretty, pretty punchy. Now, it does go on, and I, um, I kept reading, but I didn't see humility anywhere on his list. Um, but after all, who needs to be humble when you're the king of Assyria? The world has crumbled before him. Actually, historically speaking, uh, Sennacherib is an incredibly uh, impressive leader, uh, and there is no doubt the Assyrian army that he led was unstoppable at this point. We read in verse 13, uh, it's, it's reported very briefly, but uh, when you kind of understand what ancient warfare is like, you realise the horror uh, reported so briefly in verse 13. They arrive in Judah, they attacked and captured the fortified cities. It's very basic detail, but brutal uh, in reality. In fact, uh, Sennacherib tells, him, uh, tells us about uh, this himself in Assyrian records. Uh, this one is kept in the London Museum. Uh, it's quite famous, actually. Uh, in verse 14, you'll see that uh, Sennacherib was at a place called Lachish, uh, and there was a brutal and violent siege there. Uh, it's recorded in the most stunning way by the Assyrians. Uh, the next slide has a, something called the Lachish, uh, the Lachish Relief. Uh, it's this huge wall hanging that takes up a massive chunk of the British Museum. Uh, it apparently used to hang up in Sennacherib's palace, and it's showing the Assyrians, you probably, next slide, you might see a few more details of it. Uh, it shows the Assyrians uh, conquering and destroying the Judean city of Lachish, and then capturing and mutilating the inhabitants and carrying off their plunder. For the Assyrians, it's, it's great for them to record how uh, horrifically violent they were. And you realise, for the Assyrians, that was all a bit too easy. They're steamrolling the Judeans at this point. But verse 14, before they march on uh, to Jerusalem, Hezekiah, he, he wavers. He sees the Assyrians coming and he blinks. His confidence wobbles. And it reads like a moment of weakness, doesn't it? Uh, but I think it's understandable at one level. Uh, I think perhaps at one level he's trying to stop the slaughter of his people. But Hezekiah tries to pay off Sennacherib uh, with the gold and treasure from the temple. It's not a great move. It's not a good look for a king who is supposed to be faithful. We realise, yeah, he's not the perfect king after all. Still, you can understand the pressure he's under. Facing down Assyria... Well, I'm not going to judge him too severely. I'm not a big fan of being mutilated myself. Now, we're not told why, but paying off Sennacherib, it doesn't seem to work. Because verse 17, he, he's on his way to Jerusalem anyway. We don't know why. Uh, my best guess is the money isn't enough. Uh, Sennacherib, I think, is going to make an example of Hezekiah. He wants his head as a rebellious king uh, to add to his formidable collection at this point. Now, thankfully, uh, you and I won't have much appreciation for the horrors of ancient siege warfare, but what happens next is very much within our experience as the people of God. Because before sending in the battering rams and the siege towers to tear down the wall, Sennacherib sends in something perhaps even more dangerous, even more damaging. 
He sends a brilliant and vicious attack on the trust and the faith of those who are in Jerusalem. He's trying to undermine their confidence in their God. It's much like our experience as God's people. Uh, We know the battle we face is not against flesh and blood. Our battle as God's people is against things we can't see. And so the Assyrians, uh, they launch an all-out assault against mind and heart to tear down uh, their trust in God's provision and his protection. And I've got to say that the section we read, it's genius. Uh, It's a mixture of truth, half-truth, and outright lies, and it's so dangerous. So we're going to have a look and walk through relatively slowly uh, and from verse 19 to look at the ways the Assyrians seek to destroy uh, the confidence and trust that God's people have in their Saviour. So at the end of verse 19, we read this wonderful question, on what are you basing your confidence? It's a good question for us, isn't it, Tonsley? What are you basing your confidence? Uh, The Assyrians, they know they're relying on Egypt as an ally to help them uh, with their military needs. But they rightly point out here, the Egyptians are worse than unreliable. Uh, And really, I think as well, for for Israel, there's something kind of shameful and a bit embarrassing about trusting their old oppressor who had them enslaved. Trusting Egypt? Really? Do you really think Egypt are going to provide you with security? It it is foolish when the Assyrian points this out. And so it is actually a helpful line of questioning they start with for us to reflect on. Have we, like Israel, started trusting something very flimsy and possibly dangerous for our security? first example I think of is, have we heeded the warnings of Jesus that wealth, it can disappear overnight? And our long-term well-being has nothing at all to do with our bank balance, our super accounts, the equities tied up in our homes. Our long-term well-being is entirely tied up with God's provision, isn't it? Do we trust that? And if we're making our trust in God conditional on how easy we find our life financially, we realise we're in a very dangerous place indeed. So the Assyrians start with something, actually, that God himself would say about Egypt here, but you realise it's quite a cynical move they're making because by showing that Egypt can't be relying on, they've cleared the decks for the next attack. They've made it very clear that Jerusalem does have no external hope whatsoever except for God, and that's where the attack goes next. So verse 22, you say you're trusting in God, but look, didn't Hezekiah just make it harder to worship him? Clearly, the Assyrians are sowing seeds of doubt here that God is pleased with them. Like, have you worshipped God enough? Are you devoted enough? It doesn't look like it. You've got rid of places of worship. Why would he save you if you can't even be bothered to worship him properly? Now, here the Assyrians have completely misunderstood God, but they have here, I think, the rawest nerve in the human heart. Our fear that we haven't proved ourselves to God enough. Uh, what if we are lacking in our worship? What if our zeal is not enough to prove ourselves to God? Will he reject us? What if we haven't been worshipping in the right way, haven't done the right things? Uh, that probing question from this Syrian has kept many a believer living in doubt and in fear. Can I be confident God does really love me? Have I done enough to earn his love and his protection? But of course, knowing God's grace changes all of that, doesn't it? We can know God's favour and love that doesn't depend on us at all. Not on our efforts, not on our goodness, not on our forms of worship. God has already paid the price himself. He's paid what we owe for failing to worship him as we should. He's done that on the cross so that those who trust in him can rest very easy, very confident in his grace. We have nothing to fear. We know God is for us. 
Yet for those who don't know God's grace, that is a very disturbing question from the Assyrians, isn't it? Even those teetering, you can imagine under pressure, feeling just the danger of that question and being unsettling. But he's just getting warmed up. Verse 25, he takes a new line, he says, Oh, if your trust is in God for your protection, well, actually, you can forget about it. God's the one who told us to come and do this. Now, like the best of, li- um, best of lies, there is some truth in this. The best lies always have some truth in them. Uh, the prophets had been declaring that Assyria would be an instrument in God's hand to bring judgment. But of course, the key here is that they're in God's hands. They're his instrument to be used as he will. The Assyrians saying, God's told us to do this, it's the ultimate spiritual power move, isn't it? God told me that I should... Dot, dot, dot. I mean, a sentence that starts with, God told me, uh, by design, is a sentence you can't really disagree with, can you? Like, how can you disagree with them if God's told them something? It's the ultimate spiritual power move. Except that, I think actually often we should uh, challenge that statement, God has told me. Uh, Usually I think you can smell it a mile off, there's something wrong with that, because the thing God has supposedly told them to do just happens to match perfectly with what they wanted to do anyway. It's true with the Syrians, they want to come and destroy Jerusalem. Oh, God told us to do it, ah. How convenient. Imagine the young man despicably trying to con someone into dating or marrying him. God told me we should date. Really? Or the supposed prophet who obviously benefits financially from from their sensational messages from God. Maybe we would believe them that if what God told them to do was to live a self-sacrificial life in the service of Jesus, sure, I believe you when God tells you that. But the Assyrian continues, and he really twists the knife from about verse 26. Uh, we didn't read uh, beyond here, but from verse 26, he makes a point of talking directly to the citizens of Jerusalem. Uh, it's a pretty brutal attack. He asks them uh, outright, do you want to do this the hard way? Do you want to go through a siege where you'll end up eating your own excrement? You don't have to do it that way. You can do it the easy way. Just don't trust Hezekiah, your king, to help you. He can't. He's only going to let you down. In fact, our king, from verse 31, our king Sennacherib, he can give you your heart's wildest dreams. Come our way. We'll look after you. We'll give you everything your heart desires, delicious fruit from your own vines, flowing water, grain, wine, olives, honey. The Assyrian here is deliberately copying God's promises to provide for his people. We find all through the covenant. In fact, back in Deuteronomy, you see God using this language all the time, a land of milk and honey, fruit on the vine. Again, this is a formidable line of attack to undermine our confidence in God. He's saying, your God has promised so much and doesn't look like he's going to deliver. We can. We can give you everything and we can give it to you now. We can do it the easy way. You realize that's exactly the same assault on our faith, isn't it? Day in, day out. God has promised us so much, hasn't he? He does promise us security eternally. Gives us community, identity, He loves us unconditionally, gives us the promise of eternal glory. But he tells us to gain our life, we must lose it. He asks us to deny ourselves, to deny ourselves, to follow his son and living the way of the cross. It's not the easy way, it's the hard way. See, life in God's kingdom, it's wonderful, it's rich, but it's hard. The road is narrow. And alongside that, along comes the world promising all those wonderful things here and now. No waiting. Don't have to do it the hard way, the world says. We can have all the good stuff now. You can have more money than you'll ever need, the house you, you just dreamed of, the lifestyle uh, that will make you respected. 
You can be cool. You can have glory now. You don't have to wait for later. You don't have to be the weird one in your school anymore. You don't have to be the odd one in your office place who gets looked at and treated differently because of your allegiance to Jesus. That is, we are all tempted uh, all the time to let someone other than God provide what we need most. In fact, I was thinking about this. It, I think our youth here know this uh, probably far better than most of us, uh, the pressures to not identify with Jesus. Uh, that's doing life on hard mode, isn't it? The world sneakily uh, will make life look more fun if we go into it our way rather than Jesus' way. Now, this is all a question of confidence, of trust. Which will it be? Trusting in God or the king of Assyria? Uh, trusting in God or the appeal that life will be better if we take it into our own hands? He's not done yet, though. There is one final and potentially lethal attack left. From verse 33, the Assyrian asks, Look, has the God of any nation ever delivered uh, his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? The answer, of course, is no. Assyria have marched on, destroying nation and their gods one after the other. There's been no God presenting a serious obstacle to the march of Assyria. And the step of logic in verse 35 is, well, if no other gods could stop us, what makes you think your God can? What makes you so special? Yet again, that ancient attack on uh, the faith of God of the Bible is something we can recognize and feel as well. You might have heard something like the argument that, look, the world has moved on from silly old myths and religions. No one believes in Thor. No one believes in Zeus anymore. We're beyond that. Uh, modern thinking has swept aside all that kind of nonsense. It's only a matter of time before Jesus also gets swept away the same way that Zeus was. Jesus can't stand in the way of modern progress, so you better hurry up and get on board. Well, as we'll see, as the story continues, the Assyrians are about to learn the hard way uh, that one of these gods is not like the others. And more than that, this god will not be mocked. Chapter 18, it pushes, it around, uh, it pushes us around to, to consider, doesn't it? Uh, what is our confidence in? What are we confident about? See, God has not promised an easy life to his people. It's not going to be a life free of trial or temptation. We know it's going to be the opposite. And so it is good for us to examine our confidence and to do that before the Assyrians come knocking. That is, are we confident in God's character that he will keep his many promises to us, no matter the circumstances? Uh, will we have that resolve to hold fast to God's promises, even if others come and mock us for being foolish? As we read on, we'll see, as we cover briefly in chapter 19, it's actually far, far from foolish to put our trust and confidence in the God who made us. The God who loves us, and the God who has every moment of history firmly in his hand. We're going to skip through chapter 19 pretty quickly, and we'll see that chapter 19 gives, I think, a great case study in courageous faith under fire, under fire from Hezekiah. Uh, it's a long chapter, there's a lot in it, but for most of it, there's not a lot of action. Uh, in fact, the only action that happens in the first sort of 90% of the chapter is that Sennacherib has to pop out for a bit to grab a bite to eat and just kill an entire army. Uh, that's from about verse 9. Before Sennacherib heads off, he sends a brief but incredibly threatening letter to Hezekiah saying, don't worry, I'm not going to be long. We'll pick this up when I get back. Uh, the focus of chapter 19 is what Hezekiah does. And it's courageous and brilliant. He basically reads the Bible and prays. See, first up, what Hezekiah seeks out uh, is what he needs most when faith is under fire, what we need most. He seeks out God's word to hear God's perspective on things. 
Hezekiah didn't exactly dust off the, um, his NIV version of the Bible. He, he got one better than that at one level. He got to summon the prophet Isaiah, uh, the same Isaiah who wrote a big chunk of the Old Testament. Hezekiah desperately wants to know, look, here's what I can see, but what does God see? What's God's take on this? As the sovereign Lord of all history, his voice, his word is what we need to hear the most. See, in our day-to-day life, the messages and narratives that we absorb uh, from the world around us, uh, the things that are questioning and ridiculing Jesus and trusting him, those messages come thick, they come fast, and they are very deceitful. They're more formidable, I think, than we probably know. So we must seek out God's promises, we must seek out his word and cling to them. So we can see these counter-narratives for what they are. Now, the way that Hezekiah shows us what real courage uh, looks like, the other way, is, is by talking to God, by praying. Uh, from verse 14 in chapter 19, we have a, a brilliant model of prayer. It's a model of uh, bringing our burdens and laying them before God and recognizing that God's glory matters so much. It's a remarkable prayer. Sadly, I think for time's sake, we're going to skip over the details today. We'll come back to this maybe another day. Uh, but the point is clear enough. Uh, when you're under the pump, uh, do you pray first? Uh, usually my first response under pressure is not to pray. I usually make some sort of plan or uh, think, up, what do I do first? Uh, how do I solve this problem? How do I move out of this mess? Uh, but prayer for me is often, unfortunately, an afterthought at best. But no, uh, we must seek the help of the God of the universe rather than try and fix the universe ourselves. So Hezekiah rightly prays that God will be glorified, and it turns out God loves to answer that prayer. Uh, of course, not always how we would like him to. In this case, Isaiah declares the Assyrians have actually crossed the line. They have mocked the living God, and he will call them to account. You'll see in chapter 19, from about verse 20, there's a long uh, declaration uh, from Isaiah. It's actually from God uh, through Isaiah. It's a brilliant and brutal assessment of Snacherib and his pride. He's been boasting about conquering the world and being unstoppable, but God says, uh, actually, no, it hasn't been you, it's been me. Have a look at verse 25 of chapter 19. Uh, God says, Have you not heard, Snacherib? Long Long ago, I ordained it. In the days of old, I planned it. Now I've brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. God's mocking Assyrian pride here. He's saying their success is only because God has given it to them. And then, uh, have a look at verse 28. Because you rage against me, says God, and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. Uh, How refreshing it would have been for Hezekiah to hear God's perspective on things. Uh, that he will bring justice. And you can see how this reshapes his thinking about Sennacherib as well. This terrifying mighty king is being portrayed here as no more than a donkey uh, being led around by the reins of an eternal God who rules over every single moment of history. That's not all, though. Uh, God makes, through Isaiah, a very concrete promise about Sennacherib from verse 32. It says, He will not enter this city or shoot any arrow here. He He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it, By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Now, God doesn't promise to deliver us from every problem like he does for Jerusalem. And he does that for reasons of cosmic significance here. But he does help us, of course. And more to the point, 
Uh, when we need it most, he will sustain our dependence on him when we ask him to, no matter what may come after. Well, to finish off uh, with this climactic moment, this David versus Goliath battle, we find that God really does keep his word. And from chapter 19, verse 35, I think we have one of the most astounding paragraphs in the Old Testament. I think this will be on the screen as well. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. No arrow made it into Jerusalem. Hezekiah didn't have to lift a finger. God really did fight for his people. And he preserved the life of his king. Now, it's interesting. I mentioned earlier that the Assyrians had a great celebration of their victory at Lachish. Uh, they didn't say a whole lot about what happened at Jerusalem. There is um, some recorded uh, statements from the Assyrians about going to Jerusalem, but they never explained why they turned around and went home. We find out here they suffered a crushing defeat. This made me realise how often I underestimate God too quickly. He is very good at saving people, isn't he? He's very powerful. Well, to finish, uh, with all that in mind, I want us to finish uh, with one warning and then one encouragement. First, a warning. Uh, We've seen Hezekiah bold and courageous and faithful under fire. In chapter 20, realize something a bit different about Hezekiah, and his shine actually kind of wears off in the second half of chapter 20. It happens when he's not under pressure. Uh, When times are good is when Hezekiah made a terrible mistake, actually, a foolish and unfaithful move. It wasn't just a mistake, it was unfaithful. Uh, He signed up to have an alliance with Babylon, at that point a rival power to Assyria. To be honest, it's not a bad political move, but it's one that wasn't faithful to God. And so God says to Hezekiah, actually, you've done something terrible and there will be terrible consequences for your descendants. At that point, Hezekiah is alarmingly unconcerned. He kind of just shrugs and is like, oh, it sucks for them, but I guess I'll be okay. It doesn't come off well. And I reckon the point for us is pretty clear. So we've seen this incredible courage under fire, then under peacetime, he just buckles. I reckon that's the same for us often. At the times our faith often grows the most is when we are under the pump. Uh, for instance, I found as a uni student, the times I was praying the most was during exams, uh, not so much during holidays. How much more vulnerable are we to being faithless when it feels like God, we don't really need his help, we're doing fine? Well, beware complacency in our faith when good times come. Uh, Sometimes actually an Assyrian or two might be the kind of thing we uh, might need to help us trust more in the God of the universe. Well, finally, an encouragement. Uh, We've seen Hezekiah's great courageous faith, and it's right for us to aspire to be more like him. It's brilliant, great courage, great faithfulness. But then you see how he wobbled and he wavered, and he's wayward, and we think, well, if we know too well that our trust in God is, well, wobbly at best often, And we may at some point wonder if our faith has been too small to even count in God's eyes. Perhaps even now, some here are wondering, well, is my faith even sufficient for God to accept me? Will God accept me if my faith is like it is? What we see here is what saved Hezekiah's people was not so much their faith, but it was the faith of even their imperfect king. They just stuck with him. That's what saved God's people, the faith of Hezekiah. They just stuck with their king. 
How much more so for us who have put our imperfect trust in Jesus, that great descendant of Hezekiah? See, we're not saved by the strength of our faith uh, or the perfection of our faith, not at all. We are saved by Jesus' perfect faith. He was that perfect, righteous, faithful king who was steadfast and courageous in his commitment to his heavenly father. King Jesus is the only one who has ever been perfectly faithful And so he saves those who stick with him, despite our weak faith, our imperfect faith, a faith that's often riddled with doubts and falling to temptation. Praise God, he's given us the king we need. So as I close in prayer, uh, I'll be praying along the lines of Hezekiah's prayer uh, from uh, chapter 19. So would you join me as we pray? Lord, the God of nations, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. And so give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the many ways those in our world ridicule you, the living God. It's true, Lord, that the world around us gives many reasons why we shouldn't trust in you. But those reasons are, of course, not good reasons at all. And their threats have no real power over your people. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from temptation. Help us as your people always trust in you, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord our God. Amen.